Farmer Ventures, the deal experts. Welcome to the Farmer Ventures podcast, where we talk to the experts about all things deal related in healthcare and beyond. Joining me today is Ben Jacobi, regulatory expert in medical devices and in vitro diagnostics. Ben, welcome. Hi, good afternoon. So regulatory affairs, it's, I guess it's not a, not a topic that, that um, normally gets a lot of promotion and, and airplay. You, you know, the, it's a very important part of, of the healthcare sector, existing to make sure that things that get to market are safe and appropriate. And your, your area of specialty is, is medical devices and in vitro diagnostics. That's, yeah? That, exactly, that's correct. And you and I go back quite a while, yes. so, so um, you've got plenty of experience and, um, uh, and that kind of brings us to the, the point of this. We've had a regulated environment, both for IVDs and medical devices for as long as I can remember. But right now we're in the middle of a sort of transition into a new uh, set of guidelines or regulations? Regulations. And guidelines. And guidelines. And and the, the, the clarification there is a regulation, you have to do it yes. or not do it. A guideline is, it's advisable. Exactly. So regulations are law and yeah. guidance is just guidance. But you'd be well advised to follow the guidance. Exactly, okay. yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Given we had that regulatory environment, and I'm going to throw another thing into the mix here as well, um, because we, up until recently, were part of the EU, and so we were covered by that that environment too. We're not, and we can come come back to what the impact of that is later. What what was what was wrong with what we had? Um, it seemed to work all right um, from an outside perspective. And why are we needing to change it? There were a number of drivers, but basically the European uh, Medical Device Directive and the Active Implantable Directive and the In Vitro Diagnostics Directive go back to the early to middle 1990s. So one factor has been technological change. That's been actually quite a big factor. But there were also various scandals. There was a breast implant scandal involving uh, breast implants, obviously. And there was another, I don't know if scandal's the right word, but there was another issue about metal-on-metal hip implants. And there have been a number of other areas where notified bodies who are sort of freestanding regulatory bodies were implicated. And so for all these reasons, it was necessary to change and improve the regulations. So those those ones that you just alluded to there, which were the drivers, and um, I'm not going to sort of focus on them particularly, but presumably they passed the regulations at the time and so were allowed onto the market and then subsequently were found to be inadequate. And that that was the driver, yeah? Yes, so with the hip implants, I won't go into detail, but my understanding is that the manufacturer located in France was actually using um, non sort of medical, industrial grades um, silicones for breast implants. Right. And they were failing in women uh, with very adverse consequences. And they'd got through the regulatory system basically by lying because they had, uh, when the notified body that was the regulator did the inspection of the plant, my understanding is that they had all the documentation was out there. It was all looked okay. As soon as the inspectors left, they carried on doing the real thing, which was using this industrial grade material. Right. And I guess that that if you really want to sort of go against the system and, and, and do it, you could. I mean, the, no system is entirely foolproof, but it has to be sort of willful. And, and it, I guess the new regulations are making it harder for that to be. So the new regulations bring in a number of features. So, for example, one of them is unanticipated um, 
inspection, so inspectors can arrive at any time and knock on the door. Of course, nothing like that. There's no system that's foolproof, as you say, and people who deliberately want to defraud the system, they'll find ways of doing it. But the new regulations will definitely make it more difficult to do that. Right. And this is all in the context of ensuring that the device or the diagnostic is safe. Um, Does it extend into efficacious? Does it have to be? Yes, safety and efficacy. So, for example, um, with a metal-on-metal hip implants, I believe that the legal ramifications are still ongoing, and I'm really not knowledgeable about that at all. But my understanding is it was alleged that the company responsible had not done um, proper clinical testing and that they relied on showing equivalence with other devices and the new regulations are designed to improve procedures and make it more difficult to do that. Right so as well as tighter regulation if you like do developers of of devices and diagnostics have to do more than they used to do? Do they have to do clinical trials? Do they have to do them before and do they have to do them now? Are they more extensive? What what's what's the what's the real impact in terms of what people have to do now that they didn't have to do before? Right so there's a lot of impacts but if we take clinical investigation which is the technical term for what's called clinical trials in pharmaceuticals um, not a lot of people know that many medical devices got to market um, without having had any uh, sort of clinical investigation at all and the manufacturers relied on things like showing equivalence with another device. And showing equivalence is still allowed in the new regulations, but they've tightened up a lot. It's a lot more difficult to do. And the onus is more on doing a clinical investigation, particularly with newer or more complex devices. Right. The old days, I'll call it. There were different classes of medical device, class one, class two, class three. Is, is that still the case or are they have they changed as well? OK, so with medical devices, uh, nothing has changed. There are still four classes and they still are much the same as they were before. Having said that, one or two devices will move up a class, um, which will have significant consequences. But for the most part, most medical devices won't be reclassified. The exception is in vitro diagnostics where there's an enormous change and basically um, many more um, in vitro diagnostics, the majority will be will require some level of intervention from a notified body. And a notified body is a sort of third-party regulatory uh, body. Right. So, so just for the uninitiated, um, there's the developer of the device or the diagnostic, there's the notified body, there's the regulatory authority... So we've got three stakeholders here. Yes. Um, it's clear what the, the, the developer does. They, they develop and make the thing and, yes. and do all the work to prove that it is what it is and it does what it does. The, the regulator either says yes or no to it. What The notified body does what exactly? Okay, so compared with pharmaceuticals where um, there are different pathways, but basically you don't have a choice with most pharmaceuticals okay. anyway. With medical devices, you do have a choice. So notified bodies compete against each other. They are commercial organizations but there are strict limits to the competition they can't compete on price or anything like that and they have to they're the ones who approve devices but the national competent authorities they do things like supervising and appointing the notified notifying the notified bodies and they also approve or not approve um, clinical investigations in their particular member state right that sounds unnecessarily complex to me and I don't know whether you think that's the case Ben but uh, the idea <laughs> was to give manufacturers flexibility the ah. idea was like if you're in the US you basically have a choice of the FDA or the FDA yeah 
It's not completely true because the FDA does have some third-party involvement as well, but broadly there isn't much choice. So the idea here was that you, if you really... It's a bit like a marriage um, because the relationship with a notified body is a long-term relationship. But as we all know, long-term relationships don't always last. <laughs> Sometimes two parties can fall out. And so you can divorce a notified body and engage another notified body if you want. Right. It's not particularly advisable. It's a bit like marriage and divorce and remarriage. There are repercussions. There are repercussions. <laughs> but if you need it, uh, you know, it's there and you right. can do it. And that was the idea behind it. Now, I've, I've heard that there aren't enough notified bodies and that this is causing a problem, even though they're commercial entities. Is that because the commercial terms aren't good enough so nobody wants to be one anymore? Or what, 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 what's going on there? OK, I think there's a big problem there of capacity. Um, uh -huh. it's, I think it's at many levels. There are, certainly aren't enough notified bodies, but also the notified, notified bodies that were notified under the directives now have to get re-notified under the regulations. And in the case of um, the MDD, the Medical Device Directive, and the AIMD, the um, Active Implantable Medical Devices Directive. Most of them have transitioned, but I think not all. So there's still not enough notified bodies. With in vitro diagnostics, it's completely different because under the old directive, 80% of IVDs were self-certified to market by the manufacturer. Under the new regulation, about 80% will require an intervention from a notified body, and the notified bodies are not familiar with these IVD medical devices for the most part. Right. Sounds like it wasn't thought through particularly well, but it, it, I guess it is what it is. So I guess there are several consequences here. This is this has impacted on manufacturers or developers of devices and diagnostics looking to bring something to market. Um, and then also, in, in, has it impacted on people who are already in market and uh, who were previously uh, approved under the old regulation? Maybe, maybe take, I asked two questions there. Maybe, yeah. maybe do it um, in, in um, one after I, the other. Okay, so I don't think it, the lack of capacity at notified bodies is impacting um, the transition to the new regulation or regulations. Uh, it is impacting that quite negatively at the moment. But the European Commission has reacted to that this year by uh, introducing a new regulation that um, sort of staggers the transition. And I'm happy to explain more about it, but it basically allows more time, particularly for the notified body, to review. And what they've done, in effect, is allowed um, devices already certificated under the directives to continue on the market. So right. that's been the biggest change that the European European Commission has done. So for the most part, and maybe I'll be challenged on saying this, but for the most part, patients have not, nobody said, you can't have this medical device, you know, we, it's not approved, you can't have it at all. That hasn't really happened. Right. And hopefully it won't happen. Do you think it's impacted on, on people with novel devices and diagnostics that are looking to bring something to market? And as a consequence, are reliant upon venture capital money to do so. Is that that arena getting impacted because it's harder for them to get to market, which delays delays launch, which delays patent life, which delays return, which makes it less investable? So rather than, than a regulatory environment existing just to ensure safety and efficacy, it's now impacting on, on even if these things get off the ground. Is that, that So you're absolutely right. And I think 
you know, you've raised a good point. So there are several issues here. One is um, there are a lot of manufacturers who've got older products, so older medical devices, who don't want to transition to the new uh, regulation because probably they would have to spend a lot of money on these older products. Mm. Maybe they're past their prime and they're not generating very good returns. So those sort of products are being withdrawn from the market. So that's one thing that's happening. But on the innovative devices, there's a big argument going on, and I'm going to be very careful not to take sides in this (laughs) argument. The proponents uh, who support the European regulations say that it's fantastic that this will foster innovation and that Europe will be a place to come to for innovation because the regulations sort of encompass a lot of things. They have things like expert panels who can give rulings on very uh, novel devices. But the opponents say the exact opposite. And a lot of US industry, for example, I've heard people saying that they're not going to come to Europe necessarily. They'll go elsewhere to do clinical investigations and launch novel products. Um, And like I say, I'm being very careful not to take sides, but it's a very, very critical issue, this issue of innovation. Um, And it's argued about a lot. And just one other thing, I was reading today something quite interesting, which was from the, the European um, FPA, I think it's the Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries or something like that. And they were saying about the in vitro diagnostic regulation, they were saying that the transition to regulation is actually delaying a large number of clinical trials right now. These are clinical trials where there's an IVD, which is used as like a companion diagnostic. And these would be with novel, typically these would be in the area of oncology, although it's not exclusive to cancer by any means. And apparently it's causing severe delays to a lot of clinical trials. Now, can I just say there will be people who will dispute that and people will say that's an unfair criticism and it doesn't take a full account of the facts. And all I'm saying is I've read this today. I don't know. Yeah. Is is this the tail wagging the dog? It could be. Um, It's a very difficult area because we'll come on to the UK in a minute, but Mm. the UK is hoping to become the sort of natural home of innovation. Mm. So there are people in the UK licking their lips and saying, this is great for us because we're going to sort of undercut these Europeans and we're going to show them how to do it. You're listening to the Pharma Ventures podcast with me, Adrian Dorks, and regulatory expert Ben Jacobi, where we're talking about medical device regulations. Right, so let, let's let's mention the, the, the B word, the Brexit word, because we're here in the UK and you've talked quite a bit about um, European Commission and, and the, the, the new regulations there. Are, are we in the UK not adopting these then? Are we doing something different? Yes, so the medical device regulation and the in vitro diagnostic uh, device regulation, so the MDR and the IVDR, are not what is called retained EU law. And it's because when they, it's the, like the year when they took effect, it was too late to come into what's called retained EU law. And I should explain that when we talk about the UK, we really have to be clear about are we talking about Northern Ireland or Great Britain? So for those who are not familiar, and there are people who are not familiar, Great Britain is um, England, Wales and Scotland, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> Um, So Northern Ireland is basically staying with EU legislation. Right. 
So when I said to you that we're not having the MDR and the IVDR, that's not really true because Northern Ireland is having the MDR and the IVDR. It's Great Britain that isn't. Right, just so, just so I get my head around this, if I'm a diagnostic company domiciled in Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, I'm going to come under EU regulation and not UK or yes. Great Britain. So wow. under the, the Northern Ireland Protocol... Is notoriously complicated, mm. with or without this the, is notoriously complicated, actually, with or without the yeah. Windsor framework. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want to go into the details of a Northern Ireland manufacturer because that's Best particularly complex. But for manufacturers wanting to sell into Northern Ireland, basically they have to meet EU rules and EU timelines. Right. But what if I'm in Northern Ireland? I'm a Northern Ireland. We're getting into detail here, but I'm, yeah. I'm intrigued. Yes. Um, Northern a Northern Ireland domiciled device or diagnostic manufacturers selling into Great Britain yes. and also the Europe. EU and yeah. America, have I got to be compliant with three different sets of regulations? Pretty much. With the US, nothing has changed. You, you know, you've always had to comply mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. US requirements, so I don't think anybody's too concerned about that. Um, Europe, nothing has changed really, um, so you can carry on trading with Europe in effect. But Great Britain, um, there are, it is going to be different. Right now it isn't, but Great Britain is transitioning to new regulations in just over a year's time, in July 2024. Right, and um, um, we have enough notified bodies here to do that, do we? We don't. They, <laughs> just to be annoying, they're called approved bodies. Of course. In Great Britain, and not notified bodies. And the certificates are not interchangeable. So if a UK approved body provides a certificate, it won't be accepted in Europe. Right, okay. Yes, so we're going to new regulations yep. in uh, just over a year's time. And uh, we're expecting an announcement pretty soon about the transition and what that means for Great Britain. Right. And then in the summer, this summer, we're expecting um, a, a regulation on um, post-market surveillance, which suppliers to Great Britain will have to comply with. And then the regulations themselves, which will be a statutory instrument, will come probably in December, sometime around the end of the year anyway. Right. To be fair and balanced, the, the fact that... Great Britain is no longer part of Europe, and you said it earlier, we now have a set of regulations which potentially makes us a more attractive place to develop and launch medical devices and diagnostics. Yes, so the UK or Great Britain, whichever you like, is um, putting a big emphasis on innovation and supporting innovation. A lot of it is yet to come. A lot of it's been announced in outline, but we really need to see the detail of what does it really mean. But to give you one example, um, the UK is putting a lot of emphasis onto software, mm -hmm. and software is a booming area. I'm talking, of course, about medical device software, not software in general, but medical device software is booming. And the um, UK regulator has announced a roadmap that they're calling it, of all sorts of things that they're going to do over the next few years, which will include um, supporting innovation. So to give an, give an example of what they want to do, they want to make it easier to launch an innovative software medical device in Great Britain. Um, and they have various thoughts on that. Some of it will be through legislative change and some of it will be through guidance. And they've already released a small amount of guidance this year, but it's only a small amount. Do you think this is going to sort of bleed across into the, the world of therapeutics? We're already touching the world of therapeutics with delays in, in that you, you talked about earlier, um, that, that 
Great Britain is going to become and and because we want to be an area of innovation and we know the government talks about about what an innovative place this is uh, are we do you think we're going to align the, the regulations around therapeutics to make that that easier as I well I think so because the UK regulator has announced a big revamp of the clinical the drugs clinical trials uh, regulation so they've announced that recently and they've announced other things that were in the budget in March so it looks like um, the, on the clinical trials front, there will be significant changes to come and medical devices will be sort of on the periphery, if you like. So they're calling it um, a big change for medical products, which right. is basically drugs and devices and perhaps there's other things as well. And so the UK or Great Britain is moving into a sort of central position on this and it will go well beyond diagnostics, as you say, it will affect drugs. You mentioned software. Um, what about things like wearables and and the mobile phones that we all carry around that are becoming increasingly close to becoming medical devices? Um, my, my watch tells me what my my heart rate is, and yes. there are ones that are even more sophisticated than that. Are these going to get brought into the regulated environment? Well, sort of yes and no. So what the regulator is saying is they're going to issue guidance, and some of this I think will be in legislation. Um, around the periphery of what is a medical device and we're talking software here what is and what isn't so for example I've done work with people who are developing mental health uh, software for mental health and in mental health it's actually very very difficult to work out what is a medical device and what isn't and I found it extremely difficult so they are going to they are focusing on mental health but also on all other as software as a medical device and the regulator this is the uk regulator is going to issue guidance and legislation in stages over all this area we talked about great britain uk and and the various differences about that compared to the eu and you said the fda is the same as it ever was is what's going on in over here I, mean, I include europe as over here does that bring us closer to to the fda and and in some ways make life easier for people or are we still is it, is it very different you're asking very astute uh, questions Adrian, <laughs> because you're right on the ball so what was announced in the budget is very unusual really and we've yet to see the detail of how this will work in practice and this also goes back to your previous question about drugs, because I think the same thing is happening with drugs, although I'm not really a pharmaceutical regulatory expert. But um, what's happening on medical devices is that they've already announced that the, the new UK legislation will take account of medical devices which are already um, cleared or approved in other countries, and they're going to start with the US and Japan and really, frankly, the US is like the biggest supplier of mm -hmm. medical devices in the world. Um, and it, what remains to be seen and what's not at all clear is what requirements will a US manufacturer who, say, doesn't CE mark or sell his products in Europe, what will they have to do to get access to the Great Britain market? Uh, will a, a US FDA clearance or approval, will that be sufficient or will they also have to show some elements of complying with the new UK requirements? And how will users, like in hospitals, pharmacies, GPs, how will users know from a, from a medical device whether or where it's been approved? How will they know that? Mm. From the labelling, for example, what will that say? So there's a lot of unanswered questions, but basically... 
they are looking. So the UK regulator and the and the UK government is looking to more international harmonisation. Right, and that's a good thing. And this is one of their stepping stones yeah. to, to better harmonisation. And uh, this will apply to software and it'll apply outside of software to all other sort of medical devices. There's an awful lot still to be worked out, it seems, seems Ben. Which... A lot to be worked out. And, you know, often the devil is in the detail and politicians are very good at making grandiose announcements mm -hmm. and they all sound wonderful. But when you get to see the detail, that's really critical here because I've raised some of the issues. There are many others. Right. And one other related issue, which I just want to mention, is for if you take a US-based manufacturer of medical devices, what they want to know is how different will Great Britain be from Europe? Because at the moment, many manufacturers just have a European product. And because of the language issues, sometimes they might have, say, a North European or a South European, but essentially it's just a European product, which in the past has included the UK. Mm. Will they still be able to do that going forward or will they have to have a separate labelling put up for Great Britain? And how attractive will that be? And there's no, we can't... To be determined, to I be guess. To be determined, <laughs> yeah. yes. Yeah. Well, I guess in, in, in a way, again, looking for the silver linings here, this is good for you, Ben, as, as, as a regulatory advisor, because there's clearly going to be lots of questions people will need answered and, and have to come to, to folks like you to get them. It sort of is and it isn't, in the sense that, um, yes, it's a consultant's paradise to have complicated regulations. But per personally, I think there'd be masses of work if the regulations were much more simple. Mm. And the amount of time I've had to spend, particularly on uh, the implications of Brexit, it's sort of out of proportion really to the the sort of sales that would be generated in Great Britain and I just hope that we reach some sort of equitable compromise I hope it's not a sort of race to the bottom where Great Britain sort of undermines Europe by having easier regulation and takes business away for the wrong reasons I hope that we end up doing things for the right reasons given given what what it is you do and and we've talked in other podcasts about um, how it it's it, it's not enough just to to be a developer on a technical basis um that you also need commercial rationales for why things are doing and what the endpoints are and we've always known we 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 need to understand the regulatory pathway um as well as market access pricing and developing complete packages so that when you when you're in that that uh, area of developing whether it's devices diagnostics or therapeutics um when should people really start thinking about the regulatory path and what they need to do um, and getting expert advice whether that's bringing in somebody into their own company or or, or actually engaging with advisors such as yourself um, who can steer them in the right direction do, do they do it right at the beginning or should should you know what, what's what's your take on that so to take an example right i remember working for a previous company where i was asked they said that there's like um, a quarter of a million medical devices in the warehouse they're not c marked and don't meet european requirements what should we do <laughs> and my advice was well it's a pity you didn't ask me on day one <laughs> you know how do you solve that problem and the answer to the question really is as early as possible ideally right. on day one because regulatory is so much interwoven into the business plan you can't separate regulatory from the business plan Right, and that's that's a theme we've heard again when we've we've talked in in these podcasts about whether it's market access or your clinical development plan or your, yes. your forward-looking revenues. Yes, think about it on day one or as early yes. as you possibly can because they are all intertwined. And I just want to 
mention there just one other thing, which is what um, the UK regulator is trying to do. They're trying to be innovative. So they're trying to encompass some of the market level requirements so that they are working with the NHS. For example, on software, the NHS has some pretty strict requirements. So they're trying to bring those in to the regulatory system. And they're working with NICE, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence. And they're working with other sort of stakeholders. And they're trying to bring, to some extent, these market level requirements into the regulatory sphere, so far as one can do that. Ben, this has been a fascinating discussion and far more complex than, than I'd appreciated it, it, it was. And it's great to get uh, your take on what is clearly an evolving situation and one which will develop further. And we're going to have to get you back, I think, when things have <laughs> developed further and, and see how much of what we said here came to pass and, and what's changed since. So um, thanks for joining us today, Ben. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to me. For more information on other Farmer Ventures podcasts, go to www.farmerventures.com forward slash podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe. Farmer Ventures, the deal experts.